0: Who, I'll start it you. off. Are
1: you kidding? I picked this one.
0: Yes, you did pick it. So,
1: okay. Movie. So, Henry, you're I'm here to talk about uh, Wong Carwise In the Mood for Love from the year 2000. Uh, I would have picked it because it's one of my very, very, very all-time favorite films. It's sort of timely to me because um, the New York Times film critics A.O. Scott and Manolo Dargis just did a survey of the greatest films of the 21st century. And they notoriously left this movie off, and I thought it was the most glaring omission. Their list was there to start a fight, but I think this movie, which was released at the very beginning of the 21st century, is in some ways um, just a great way to start a new century of cinema, something that's so radically different from what's before it. But uh, instead of starting um, with, a lot of, specific, with a, a lot of details, I have one really particular question for you, Jonathan. Yes. It has to do with the main theme of In the Mood for Love, Uh which is that sort of waltzy piece called Yumeji's Theme. Um, Is that a catchy piece of music or is it a catchy piece of music because he uses it nine times?
0: There's a lot of things about that piece of music, it, it takes some unexpected turns, so it's, it sounds like something that you want to sing in your head a certain way, but it has a couple of unexpected turns in the melody, so it actually takes nine times for you to really get what the trick is, it comes out, the cadence is rather funny, twice, but I think the coolest thing about it is um, it's not, it's where he used it, which is just over those montages, and so they're like chapter chapter changes. They are really a theme to the movie, and he doesn't really use them to drive any of the any of the drama or any of that. It's it's really just there as literally as a mood piece, even in with the way the way that it's cut, even in with with where you're supposed to get emotional over yearning or things moving away, but nothing ever while they're actually proceeding with the film. I thought it was great for really like opera. Now, and, I realize I didn't quite answer your question, but what do I think? I think it's catchy also.
1: <laughs> it, it really is. Um, this movie came out long enough ago that the first thing I did after seeing it was go purchase the CD of the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and I listened to it a lot. And the piece, That piece in particular was composed for another movie by Seijin Suzuki. So it made me wonder, and I actually don't know the answer to this, whether Wong Kar-wai thought about it as temp music and then stuck with it the way that uh, Simon and Garfunkel were the temp score to The Graduate. And then Mike Nichols was like, we should just use all this music. Yeah, it, so it it's, happens all the time. Nobody yeah. goes in there and says, oh, this piece of music from your movie, I'm gonna make it the theme for my movie. Usually once a piece of music is composed for a film, you you wouldn't naturally transpose it. But then it really takes it over as well as the other musical character, which is um, Nat King Cole. Uh, yeah. In particular, Cole in Espanol. Siempre que te pregunto que cuando como y donde tu siempre me respondes quizás, quizás. quizás. Nack Cole recorded two albums in Spanish, and you almost wonder whether Juan Caruay encountered them making Happy Together, the film he just made in Buenos Aires. But to take a movie that takes place in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Cambodia, and is in two different Chinese languages. And then to have the sort of voice of Amor be Spanish sung by an American, it's just, it's it's so distinctive that it all of a sudden, it feels as if the music was made for the movie, when of course he was just putting it together like a very, rigid and organized magpie
0: like the very like the film like the visual parts of the film are also that way i mean they they are they're they're magpie i mean it makes sense everything is everything corresponds at least in terms of its its basic sort of contours that is the music the thing you just described is also i also found to be the case with the contours of the movie and the sudden cuts towards i mean his, his stuff is so cut out of several pinpointable, very clear, iconic director's things that you see. That, I mean, you know, even though it's like not, you know, it's it's got loads of, uh, what would you call it, uh, you know, uh, Bertolucci Storaro-isms. It's got lots of Godard drops into philosophy and also cuts into just watching <laughs> things that aren't directly related to the drama that are just total poetry going by, you know, complete focuses that way. It's got uh, um, Hollywood absolute clarity shots that go on that are from classic Hollywood, things that are just, you know, lovers apart in the rain, you know, these things that are just like iconic from black and white, you know, from great Hollywood black and white films for how you shoot that stuff. And so it's so much, but it, but it's not dropped in in a logical manner. It's completely laid out in a way that is like, really somebody played with this until they got the mixture just right, and then...
1: Absolutely, <laughs> you know, um, uh, Wong Kar Wai was really one of a group of filmmakers from Hong Kong who all sort of got noticed in America in the 90s, probably due to the rise of home video in the 80s, that there was much more access to world cinema. And so the first people that we knew about America were obviously John Woo, and Choi Hark and people like that Mm -hmm. who made, uh, you know, action movies, pistol operas. And, um, Wong Kar-Wai who'd made several films was, got his first notice in America when, um, Quentin Tarantino's distribution arm that was called Rolling Thunder distributed Chungking Express. So that was the way a lot of people saw him, certainly on the big screen for the first time. And so Tarantino, who borrowed so much from Hong Kong cinema, uh, and their sort of shared love of action movies and exploitation, shares with Wong Kar Wai an endearing love of Godard and of an experimental approach to narrative. Yeah. And so that's what I think makes this movie, which I think is the crystallization of everything he tries to do, so amazing because he makes a movie like, you know, like, he'd, like no one ever told him what you were supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's something that uh, – you know, it's distinctive. You can't describe the movie without describing all the things that it doesn't do. We, we, and the fact that it defies description is kind of the thing that I think makes me rewatch it again and again, because I, I watch it and I still don't understand it, but I keep watching and I know that decoding it formally, uh, breaking it down to its parts will still not reveal exactly what it is, which is the creation of a mood.
0: Well, we were talking about this on the, on the drive up. I mean, for me, I, I really resisted in this case reading tons of reviews or background information for the for the main reason that I knew and I had this experience because I'm a Qadar lover and I know that the general tendency for people is to start off their reviews by saying it, it, um, it's not really put together in a way that's a narrative thing or any of these things, it goes, it's, it's a film poetry thing. They start that way. And then within a paragraph, they start trying to decode a narrative line through the whole thing. So, and I always found this to be really uh, an annoyance because it's, it's from the position of a musician, like music, film like that works like music. The amount of information transfer that you're getting per moment is so high that to reduce it down to what the lines of the film are or which way it goes is to cut off the amount of information that you're actually getting from a film like that which is a colossal amount of lines of stuff that if you just let yourself you know get it, 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 fall with it you'll you'll start to see how much information is being delivered to you per, per second you know
1: so uh, unlike the other thing. two movies we've talked about so far you had not seen this movie before No, so tell me what you think of it
0: i love it I loved it on I loved it in a lot of ways. I mean first thing first thing is there is Starr us, which is the red and the green. I love cinematography. You know, you know that, so I love these these kind of photographers. And the guy's doing a huge red and green play, which I think is really funny because, you know, it's you know, it's the the, the painting I mean, it's just it's just like one of those drops, like one of those things. And I think it's fine. And of course that cinematographer, I mean Christopher Doyle is it's more of a primitivist. I mean he acts like he doesn't you know, it's everything he does is not it doesn't have film school refinement or any of the kind of, you know uh, you know preciousness of of, of really high end cinematographers, although everything is precious about the way it's shot, you know which is you know and then and then so the color thing is really really great there's a certain humor in it because these people are so elegant walking around really rough regions right so does she dress
1: here. like that to go out and get noodles <laughs> is that, yeah. you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah and then and then <laughs> you know, that's really funny and then. Um, and then there's the, the, the thing with, um, uh, you know, as I said, I mean, I, I love the fact that following this very strange theater that they, that they carry on with each other, they decide to get into theater as a way to deal with the problem that they can't really fully get together on anything. So they get into this bizarre theater that these sort of, Kaz, you doing double takes, which you're already, you've already been introduced to doing double takes because they, they're doing them in, the, 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 they decide to cut double takes. All over the place already. Right, so you've seen this kind, this kind of overlap going on. So you have, a, you have, you have, you, you now have the overlapping of the film and and that slowing down thing recurring now at the level of the prosaic narrative of the prosaic dialogue thing. So this is really funny.
1: And then when they realize they can't
0: deal with the situation, then all of a sudden it cuts to this incredible philosophical thing and drops into Buddhism and a whole bunch of other stuff that that, in the drop of a line. The guy says, you know, he goes back in and he says, the whole world that was is no, I don't remember the exact quote, but he says that whole world no longer exists. Right? He goes in and yeah. says, whatever whatever, whatever happened, it's the same places, But I don't remember the way he said it. It's a very Buddhist line.
1: It's a, it's a movie that's, you know, it, it, <laughs> it's a movie of luscious rigidity, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's got these beautiful colors and music and the style of it is so seductive. But the characters in it are sort of trapped by their clothes, by their mores, by their relationships. And so eh, eh, you might have encountered in some of the featurettes or something, that one of the reasons that the movie is so rigid was because of the difficulty of shooting a period piece in a compacted place like Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have a lot of vistas. Yeah, They had to really pick alleys in certain places and go back to them again and yeah. again. And so that's why the movie... You know, the parts in Hong Kong, some of them were also shot in Bangkok and other places mm-hmm. in order to get the specific look of 1962 and the early 60s uh-huh. that they were going uh-huh. for. So it's funny to know that this is a movie that you started off with something he might have wanted to do in Beijing and then he settled on Hong Kong. And then I think there might have even been a historical accident that involved them. There might even have been a historical accident involving them shooting at the Angkor Wat Monastery mm-hmm. in Cambodia. But once you do and then realize that's going to be the end of the movie, uh, you're right. It brings in aspects of Buddhism or religion or it's just really the payoff to this idea that Mr. Chow says, you know, if you have a secret, you should whisper it and then cover it in mud, right? (laughs) So that's what ends the movie. But the fact that it does so in such a profound change of time and place. It has a couple of quick epilogues that are in some ways like this violation of the tightness of the rest of the story.
0: Well, yeah, uh, but if, didn't you think there was this, uh, I'm not sure if they're a violation. In other words, what they are is, as I said, it's really an information expansion. Like it's, this isn't a violation really. What would be a violation is to make it narrow and just make it sort of a, a costume drama of of a period. <laughs> well,
1: I do think uh, we've gotten pretty far. I've done my homework. I think I could summarize the plot of the. Oh, movie. let's do
0: it. That's a good, good section. Great <laughs> it's
1: a funny challenge. Uh, everybody knows this movie. You'd recognize the frame of it. But if somebody says, what is it about, you immediately go to themes, because it's very difficult to say. You, very quickly, you would say, this is the story set in Hong Kong in 1962 about two spouses of other people who are neighbors, a man and a woman. He's Mr. Chow and she's Mrs. Chan. Uh, They meet each other after becoming neighbors and find out that their spouses are having an affair. And the way they deal with this is by gradually reenacting the affair themselves, each pretending to be the other person's other person. And uh, it takes things about as far as it can go. Either they do consummate their relationship that they're pretending to have and we don't see it or they never do. And it ends with him, uh, with them separating. Uh, In a slightly more detailed way, Mr. Chow rents a room for himself and his wife. Mrs. Chan rents a room for herself and her husband. Uh, And then their spouses are gone on business trips all the time these two keep meeting cute as Ernst Lubitsch would say, they keep bumping into each other in interesting ways. And then they start to put two and two together and realize that their spouses are gone all the time with each other. Um, they each have somebody in the outside world that informs the way they think. She works for a man named Mr. Ho who has a wife and a mistress. She's constantly helping him, you know, buy multiple gifts and negotiate keeping those two things separate. And, uh, Mr. Chow has a friend named Ah Ping who is um, a little bit more lascivious, someone who is far more likely to like sleep around and, you know, he tries to sleep with Mrs. Chan, which is not going to happen. (laughs) But in other words, it kind of lets you know that these two people who are very rigid, that she wears these uh, high necked dresses and he's always in a suit. that they are in a sort of emotional prison of their own design that isn't somewhat reflected by the mores of Hong Kong in the 60s, but it's really something that's very specific to them. And so they go as far as they can to pretend to be cheating, uh, but they can't do it because they don't want to be like them. The question is, what is the point at which you break what it is that you're trying to do, whether it would actually be sleeping with each other or having an emotional or actually having a full relationship and not just playing around with it. And then there's a series of uh, misses at the end. He goes to Singapore, wants her to join him. She doesn't or can't. Years later, he comes back to see his old landlady. They're gone. He doesn't realize that Mrs. Chan, who now has a child, is living next door. He doesn't ring the bell. He sees her old cigarette, and they leave separate. And he you know, follows an old piece of wisdom, goes to visit the Angkor Wat monastery and whispers his secret whatever it is and covers it in mud and that's sort of the end of the movie and in a s- sort of historical way it, it also coincides with the end of an era in Hong Kong that things changed in the world and so things changed for them uh, and that's it
0: yeah that's pretty good and I it actually brings me to the, to the other thing that was really good and uh, brings me to the thing that I was going to say which I completely forgot for a moment there which is it is really interesting to me that as you said they're rigid and in a way there's a game going on in the movie about whether it's really that rigid societally and clearly not because he does have those two friends. I mean, one of the guys is sitting there going to the whorehouse, the gambling.
1: Ah, oh, Ping, man, There's that's the, the guy. The he's bo- like-
0: the boss of the boss of the, the, her boss, who who's clearly you know she's setting him up for an affair everywhere. And so, so the normalcy of letting it hang out and be loose. And and and, and you know, in the factory, his friend is like, "Would you loosen up and go home?" And he's like, "No, I'm just going to finish." So really, it's just those two are really, not exactly Hong Kong. It is true. There's there's a pretty
1: classic story about the doomed lovers who are having an a passionate affair in a in an era in which such a thing was not permitted. And it so happens that in this era it is permitted <laughs> but they won't permit them so.
0: Yeah, they won't do it. They're like living their own sort of, you know, Victorian Nightmare in the middle of in the middle of you know you don't have vaguely to, you
1: don't have to go back to Queen Victoria do you know what I mean Yeah yeah well, it's true this, these are characters right out of Graham Greene Graham green always has these stories like the end of the affair about two people who cannot permit themselves to experience joy Yeah uh, and that's kind of what their deal is I mean it's that they're like they're pretty much the only people in the movie who live by this code.
0: Yeah, I mean you know of course, well there is that. I mean you know they, yeah yeah. I was more thinking of like you know Thomas Hardy books and whatnot, where it's like sort of like the, the murmurings of of oh my god they they love each the, 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 did they love each other? I'm not sure was that loving each other. You know and I, you
1: know, <laughs> but nobody's going to get stoned, but you know, by, you yeah, know they're not going to drag them out of town and be like how dare you pursue your heart.
0: yeah. We're, we're the opposite, which yeah. is like American things like that, which is all we all we know is that in the back some nefarious affair happened that no one should have done you know that's like everyone's trying to get over some incident that that that, that was
1: too- remember the line late in the film there's one where he comes back to hong kong from cambodia I singapore think, singapore and he rents the same room they were in for a while and she comes and they don't even touch each other just talk room 2046 uh was it it's room oh, 2046 yeah 2046 and, and he says, he explains it, you know, just throws it out. You can see the, the what he's explaining is just in their eyes and expressions. And he says, we must not be like the others. We can't be like yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you must remember that one. Yeah, that's, that's cool. really the – it's sort of the emotional climax of the movie because we're wondering how far it will go. It's a movie that – it's a movie that is determined – it's not it's not that it's trying to be cryptic, but it's a movie that f- forces you to try to decode it. Like when they start uh, flirting with each other, romancing each other, on several occasions, the scene starts and you don't know if this is them being them or them pretending to be other people. So he's sort of he's sort of playing this game with you. The other thing that you have to have to mention, and it's pretty interesting that we've gone this far without mentioning it, is that it has the very formal concede. Of focusing the movie around Mr. Chow and Mrs. Chan and never showing you their respective spouses, yeah. the ones who are cheating with each other. So in the same way as, you know, uh, it, there's that great bit about Polanski in uh, Visions of Light. They talked about framing a scene behind a door that forces the audience to sort of like lean to see if they can peer behind a door. He really is – he. He sets the movie up like a riddle where you want to see things that the characters can see but we can't. So it, it, that's in many ways – that's something that is sort of designed to engage you.
0: Well, yeah, but in, but in another kind of way. I and mean, I think there's another level to artwork there. You know, like I, I'm a big Beckett fan and so Beckett works like this where everything is, is suggesting to you that there is some kind of thing. It's very the, – the, He's, he's pulling you in with all of the drop lines of familiarity that would lead you to suggest that you were supposed to be concentrating and coming out with some kind of meaning at the end of it. And he's doing it line by line by line by line. It's an incredible feature of Beckett. And all of it leads you to, on the other hand, finally, when you've done that to your to, across your whole life or even across one book, you just feel what he's probably trying to get you to just feel completely lost and helpless so again here you have a, you have this kind of this kind of art, art, artwork where it's giving you all of the feeders that would normally be there for you to follow something but, but they're not really they don't really lead into each other that way. so and so you end up but you, but on the other it's not like Beckett. you don't end up with that feeling but I don't believe he's not trying to give you the feeling of Beckett so in other words they're both very successful that way
1: but he's trying to give you a feeling, and that's um, yeah. his goal. Anybody who looks at this movie and wants to get the correct answer, like did they sleep together or not, or what you know, were they lying in that scene, or like you'll never be able to conclude the the t- truth of what happens in this story, which is I think why he picked the Nat King Give the, the Nat King Cole song, Kisas, 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 the perhaps, perhaps, perhaps song, because he really embraces the ambiguity of it. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways by not paying you off and giving you that, you are really left with the feeling. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson has a great quote where he says, uh, you'd be hard pressed to summarize the plot of Boogie Nights, but if I've done my job right, you'll always remember how it made you feel. Yeah, And so this is a movie – most movies tell stories and then leave you with a feeling. This is a movie that tries so much harder to create a feeling with aspects of story. But it's really left with – you absolutely feel – the lives of those people and not the spouses and not the romances and not the fact that she ends up having a kid and all this other stuff is not relevant. Just the part that existed between those two people.
0: Yeah. Well, it's cool. You know, I mean, this reminds me of like what, 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 you know, some people were calling for a while primitivism in music, which is, uh, which was a funny period out there, but, but, you know, guys like Pierre Boulez were trying to get folks like, you know, Frank Zappa or John Cage to interact with people that were considered academic composers. I mean, he introduced as in music. it was funny that he said this, but really what it was is people that were far more concerned with idea and meaning than with, you know, with execution and skill and craft and these kinds of things. And it's very interesting because the Wong car Wai thing, it, Christopher Doyle always talks this way about those things too, and I, I like that they forget it, get an idea and then and then proceed from there you know and then I think i i i I, I especially nowadays have a big feeling for that because the problem I think in in uh, in, in the films now is that they're they've become so much related to mm, <laughs> monetization that it's really hard it's really hard to find people that aren't hired just because they're good at the craft so we expect experts to well, experts at some kind of experts at some kind of technical maneuvering and so then everyone has a technical maneuvering party and at the end they don't really have a feeling what you have is a thing like wow that's a cool movie
1: I mean yeah. until, <laughs> until movies are free to make and free to watch it no, nobody wants to make a living doing them monetization will be an aspect of it this movie was as lush as it is Because Wong Kar Wai Had a series Of ever increasing successes yeah. His previous film Happy Together He won the Best Director Award At the Cannes Film Festival And so this was kind of His big shot And 2046 Is probably an even more Expensive movie It's a science <laughs> fiction movie uh, And then when that Didn't really set the world On fire He was made more he, he, His most recent film The Grandmaster Is like an actual Wuxia martial arts story Yeah Um which is, again, trying to find a way to the audience so that you can make the movie you want to make. That thing where, how can I give people, what is it, a vampire movie? But then also make it a, a personal movie in the style I want. Uh, Wong Kar Wai, unlike some directors who are just trying to create a movie in their head, he's a, it's a process that this is a movie that he discovers in the making of it what it is he's trying to do. And the closest example of that would be Terrence Malick. Mm -hmm. And he has in common with Terrence Malick that he has exhausted cinematographers that like days of heaven changed cinematographers after like the first year. And so did, uh, in the mood for love, Chris Doyle eventually left and shared credit with another DP. Oh Uh, really? Who was the other DP? Um, well now you're going to get me. He's, uh, He's another fellow – oh, my gosh. Chinese name, isn't it? Yeah. He works with Edward Yang or somebody or worked with Edward Yang. I cannot remember his name. And some people would like to break down, oh, well, this is Chris Doyle's look and this is the other guy's look and he brought this stability to it. Uh, But in fact, I think it was all just of a piece. Wong Kar Wai and Terrence Malick and then really the guy who kind of invented that approach, (laughs) Stanley Kubrick, have to be true artists in the sense that people will give – a year of their life, like Maggie Chung said, I made this movie instead of making six other movies, but it was worth six other movies. You, to be part of this process, even if you don't know, and maybe even the director doesn't know. And then ultimately, I think he, I don't want to say ran out of resources, but at a certain point, he knew that the process of discovering a movie in production had to end. And then he had to kind of figure out what it is. Hmm. And then he decides later, like, you know, quite famously, there's a deleted scene of their relationship going further and it's ever gone where they go to the bedroom and disrobe and uh, Paul Schrader said in an article in Film Comment that it's really the most amazing scene he's ever seen but he knows it's not supposed to be in the movie right Mm -hmm. because and by removing it he he adds an ambiguity to that question like we can't be like them Like, what does that mean? Does that mean you're not going to fall in love? You're not going to have a true relationship? You're not going to have sex? Like, what does that mean? And in some ways, he answered the question more by shooting a scene and then removed it. So I don't think the deleted scene is real. I just think it's something that he wondered about, that he tried it out with. Sure. And so the idea that it's a movie that's... um, It's the secret. Yeah. he He doesn't make a movie to sort of correlate with the screenplay. He makes a movie to see how can he get... How can he create a feeling? So there's no sense that like ending the movie in Cambodia or, or you know, using this song or that song. Of course, that's the perfect thing. It's just, it, you know, this isn't a Swiss watch. Some movies are so perfectly designed that they play you. And this movie is not that. This, this movie is, is much more, about. it's much more like uh, finding a seashell where you're like, how the hell did this even get made?
0: Sure, that's exactly what I'm talking about <laughs> in terms of the drive for a feeling or having an idea initially that is that things are falling in line against or subservient to. And I think that's really a really really not that uh, you know and the, the idea doesn't have to be definable like the way you most people think of an idea is what's your idea my idea is we're going to go to lunch at four you know I mean just been really worry. not that kind of idea you
1: know? but, it's, it's why it's so bottomless to contemplate because of course the first thing you do is start to think about the colors or the outfits or the casting or the very particular style of shooting or you know the use of slow motion or varying frame rates at, you sort of want to, you want to analyze the vocabulary you want to design a lexicon and say oh, every time he does this, that means that every time she wears this, that means that uh, but I don't think uh, I think the fact that it, it's not like an allegory or something where you can no. just decode it, you can't and so I think that's why I continue to go back to it again and again, I'll watch it and actually, you know, this movie came out it had a good run theatrically but I live in Los Angeles and it played at the Monica Fourplex, the Lemley Theater uh, in, in Santa Monica, and they played it on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m., and I went every week. Yeah, I think wow. I saw this movie six weeks in a row, because hmm. you just... I, the, because it continually, it's like the curtains open, and you're in this world, and the curtains close, and you're like, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> I read t- Tony Raines, who's the, a pretty accomplished Wong kar scholar in English, who his interview alone is a lengthy feature out on the DVD, he wrote a book for the BFI and he spent half the book trying to summarize the movie. Like let, okay, I, we can't really do this if I don't explain everything that you saw. And so even though I've watched the movie many times, I went back to read how you in 40 pages would describe the movie. And it really is like, uh, even the most detailed explanation fails yeah, you can read and you can read a blow-by-blow description of what happens in the movie and get no sense of what it would be like to watch it.
0: Like I said, I go back to what I said at the beginning. I knew it when I when I saw the movie. I don't. It's like, uh, and I because again. I've had the experience with with a lot. I mean, I'm a massive art fan. And I'm reading the stuff. Anything written about it that isn't by him is usually just completely bizarre and way off the mark in terms of the reduction because. He's clearly not thinking that way, right, you know. So But I you know, and here was the same thing, so I just didn't even I started looking and I was like, it's probably not gonna be the way to go.
1: <laughs> well, if ever there was a movie to watch <laughs> without reading anything about it, I may think I maybe would depending on the viewer, I might give them a bit of a caveat emptor and say, Don't expect this other thing, but I wouldn't tell them what to think or feel.
0: Yeah. I'm never sure about that. You know, that's interesting that you say that about, about, about giving them a caveat MTOR. Um, I, I, I always think that, you know, I mean, it's best to give the uninitiated observer absolutely no leads just so they realize that they're going to have to confront that as an art form, as part of the art form in the world, that they come away totally confused or they hate it. At least they know that they couldn't resist it. It exists.
1: Um, <laughs> and I have to, for, as a tribute to my father, the Latin scholar, I'd have to say, I really meant to say caveat visor, which is beware what the viewers Understand viewer that, listeners. It's okay, because
0: <laughs> so, so, <laughs> it's also our, our producer here, opposite from me, is also a Latin scholar. Right,
1: so there you go. <laughs> um, but I think, boy, i got to tell you, the desire to give anybody any sort of intro to this movie to say, just so you know, this is the movie where you don't see the other people and it's not going to follow. It's because I want people to watch it twice the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you, to <laughs> you know, that first I don't want people to watch this movie and leave confused, even though I'm sure that what, that's what has to happen. It's literally like, the, you know, you get to boot camp and they shave your head. Like, that's what has to happen. You have to get yeah. into this movie and be like, well... There are a number, I have questions. That's the way everybody would leave a movie like this and say, hold on. Can I just get this clear? Did we ever see, well, we saw him from the back. They played mahjong. They did know each other, but we don't see that. Oh, okay. And then the second time you get more from it. But again, um, that's what I think makes a movie like this special, which is that you can continually have the experience of mystery and wonder. Um, and I consider it inexhaustible. Uh, and probably because it does this sort of – I'm decoding again. But because of all the things that the the characters in their lives aren't able to do, we find them sort of – the word is rigidity. They're really stuck in what they say, do, and act and how they will permit themselves to behave, whereas the movie doesn't. The movie, really, no. the movie is a lot – the movie has a lot – more emotional fun than the characters themselves, they're getting there bit by bit. But the use of the lush music, the lush camera work, and the lush color is a way of um, delighting the viewer, Yeah, even even though it has a real torturous delay of gratification that ultimately never comes. It has this like Shakespearean mistaken identity conclusion that's a real drag because you're like why didn't you go to singapore or dude why couldn't you have just knock on the neighbor's door and you could have seen her again and,
0: but uh, for me that didn't happen i just thought it resembled so many things i've come across in life with relationships by the time by the time that it's a thing that is likely to maybe people are second guessing and thinking maybe we could get back that maybe this maybe that the actual point of interference is that you've you philosophized it and justified it out to the point where you are, the, the, you're different people in the time period has gone. There's no way to, to back it up that way. So in a way the the, the, the intimations really just enforce how intense it was in the previous time period. You know what I mean? And so in a way I found it totally satisfying that way. Like it wasn't, I didn't feel like, Oh my God, let's race. Let's try to get some kind of finality consummation here. Like the, it, it occurred to me that, They'd gotten it, but that's just me, you know. I I mean, I'd I'd be fine if people got comfortable with life working that way instead of, you know, living in the fantasy of it working the
1: other way. I I had the weirdest connection. I was reading something because I really felt like I can't just come in here and talk about how the movie makes me feel. I tried to do my homework. There's a, I think there's a character, it might even be Mrs. Chan, who has a name that comes up again and again in Wong's movies. And I thought, and they were trying to read some sort of symbolism into this. And I was like, you know, that could be the case. But Billy Wilder has like six movies where there's a character named Sheldrake. It might just be a name he likes. Uh, So because I was thinking about Billy Wilder, which, again, is not a logical jump from Wong Kar Wai, I thought about The Apartment, which is another movie about um, marital infidelity so I thought about that plot device of like the gifts where her job for her boss is to buy two gifts, one for his wife and one for his girlfriend. And then, you know, Chow and Chan sort of figure out that their spouses are, 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 are going after something because they both travel a lot and they each come back with a present that you can't get anywhere else. And I thought, boy, what a time. I mean, maybe they still do this in France or something where it really was like the proper care and feeding of a wife and girlfriend.
0: Right. right but <laughs> I, I was, I, I thought, I thought, that, you know, I think I was about to introduce a red herring basis. Yeah, you know, if you're looking for decoding, but one thing that is clear is that handbags still are more revealing than rice cookers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the handbag, man. Um, I, I do, I love that, I said it already today, but that line where they're like, that she wears that just to go and get noodles, that the two of them really are, they're not these universal heroes. They really are very specific characters who are kind of like (sighs) paralyzed in their cuckoldry. They realize that they, that they're, there's something that they don't know and that they don't want to know it and they have to figure out how to deal with it. And this is their sort of, way of doing it. That in particular is a theme that goes through a lot of a lot of movies I like where people are put into a very difficult situation and make completely irrational choices. Right? Like, oh well this is what you would do. The the standard things that we would think about if you were confronted with the realization that your spouse was cheating on you would be there's so many ways to go about it, but I would never come up with this one do yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean uh and I, even if I did it would probably be a little bit more um a little bit more involved just to investigate the feeling is as far as they go and that's really all that we can handle
0: which they or, or you know or they enjoy it I mean you know we haven't gotten into the you know there's a sort of, yeah a sort of uh, you know BDSM aspect where you where you put yourself in tight clothing and and don't get involved. And this is are really getting involved. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <But>. Everyone. <else. laughs> um, and then you know, the last aspect that, of the plot that hasn't been mentioned is that uh, you know, he rents this room that is, you know, sort of very obviously called room twenty forty-six. Very red. Very, very red. red. <laughs> uh, but the number but the number of it, of course refers to the year that Hong Kong will be returned by China and given its independence after a 50 year period. And so 1997 was the year that, uh-huh. the, that it, it, the UK oh, I returned agree. Hong Kong to China. And then there's a, this is part of a 50 year period. So 2046 is a year that I think it's fair to say Hong Kong people fixate on because it's a, it's an approaching important year in yeah. history. So for him to make that the hotel room and then for him to later make a sort of larger, more expansive film called 2046, uh, gives a certain overt symbolism in a way that a lot of the other symbols in the movie don't connect yeah. very specifically to like... That number cannot mean a lot of things. It does mean something very specific. Mm-hmm. But he goes there and he wants her to collaborate with him on a Wuxia serial. I'm not even I'm pronouncing it correctly. Wuxia. W-U-X-I-A is the sort of martial arts story mm-hmm. that's not only movies, but also like serialized stories. And so he wants her to collaborate with them. And so it has this aspect of you know, Madame Bovary, but how messed up we can get from storytelling. Yeah. You know, stories can deceive us into having false glamorous ideals of, of emotional reality. And so that becomes their sort of project they do together is that he wants her to collaborate with them on this story. And they don't spend a lot of time spinning stories, but I think, Oh, that's interesting. That's what they're getting together to do. Um, there was a story recently, the film, did either of you see Tony Erdman, the no. German film last year? Pretty amazing movie about a woman uh, who's got a...
0: The only German uh,
1: a, a About a woman, uh, a woman with a nosy dad uh-huh. who has an odd sense of humor. I'll just leave it at that. It's a very unusual movie. It's almost three hours long. It keeps you at arm's length and it has sort of a, a loose jocular tone with periodic comic set pieces that really kind of sucker punch you because of the amount of negative space. Uh, it's a very impressive movie, you should definitely watch it. However, there was recently news that they're doing a Hollywood remake with Kristen Wigg as the daughter and Jack Nicholson coming out of retirement as the father. And I thought, well, how quickly can you ruin a movie by taking perhaps the least interesting part of it, the story, and reconceiving it in the Hollywood idiom, whereas that the story is not the thing. So if you were to do a Hollywood remake of okay. In the Mood for Love, wow. you would be like, well, it's this story about two people who find out their spouses are cheating, and they decide to concoct their own revenge by coming up with a story. Like, there would have to have been a larger purpose to it, where this is a movie that doesn't at all... It doesn't feel like real life. It's a lot better. <laughs> but uh, it... It's also not stylized in a story in a way that uh, it's not an emotional revenge story. No. It's not even a story where they end up better people or, or even that they get over it. No, it's just it's a story just, about a series of things that happen, about people who sort of encounter, um, you know. It
0: is what it is. It's a down. central break. You suck into it and. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I, I loved it. I wouldn't... I, I'd be parf. I, I wouldn't put it past Hollywood to attempt to make a remake out of it, but...
1: Uh, it would have to be... It wouldn't be something they'd come up with, obviously. Remove
0: saturation.
1: No, I think, <laughs> I think we're, out of the, we're out of the initial blast radius. You know, uh, um, Tony Erdman's a wonderful movie, and it sort of ran the table, won a lot of awards, and got a lot of attention. It probably should have won the Oscar this year for Best Foreign didn't. I think that... The sense of a global market is mm-hmm. what makes people do that. Um, now if somebody wants to do it, they'll do it because they want to in the same way that you know Zhang Mao, the Chinese filmmaker, is the guy who um, – he's the one who made a – he did a remake of Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers movie, called A Woman, A Gun, and A Noodle Shop, which is just an oddball movie. And you think, well – You can easily look at that movie, just along with the other movies on your shelf or that you might be watching, and you'll say, well, whose bright idea was to do a Chinese remake of Blood Simple? Like, it was not Market Forces that determined that. It was Zhang Mao saying, you know what? That movie has a great plot. But I think I could do it differently, and you'd be hard pressed to find a more unusual take on the Cohen brothers than the Zhang Yimou movie.
0: Yeah, but there's nothing wrong with that. that's a different that's, that's a whole different yeah. trip.
1: That's like what Ghost Dog was
0: yeah. for Lassemer. I mean, it's not really a problem that it was like, you know what I mean. I mean, we're gonna, you know what I mean.
1: Now, if you want to see an American remake of In the Mood for Love why don't you watch my blueberry nights Has either one of you seen this no, no do you know the movie i'm talking about no I, I, this is also a movie that's not easy to find even though it was released by miramax wong Wai followed up in the mood for love with his first film in english oh, okay which is a movie that is if in the mood for love is but the colors red and green my blueberry nights is a movie about pie Uh, You have never seen blueberry pie with vanilla ice cream look better than it does in this movie. It's a luscious movie like this one and it stars Nora Jones. Wow. Nora Jones, a musician. uh, It it, it plays this woman who's sort of on an American road trip. I need to say who's who. It's got Jude Law and Natalie Portman. Um, It's got Rachel Weisz. It actually has a scene stealing turn by the musician Cat Power. Do you know um, Cat Power? No. She's fantastic. Chan Marshall is her real name. And she is great in this movie. And I'm like, why doesn't she do more movies? But, um, it did not connect with audiences. It does not have a strong critical reputation. And I think in some ways, what was mysterious and dare I say exotic, by the mood for love, uh, became that much more mundane that what those characters were talking about in subtitles didn't seem, it, it just seemed a little stagier. Uh, you never know with a movie. Movies often get much better in the rearview mirror, removed from their initial context and our expectations of them. But it would be fascinating to see if, like, Wong Kar-wai, you can see – you can recognize any movie that he's done and be like, that's got to be him. Mm-hmm. Nobody else would have made *Chung King Express or Fallen Angels or um, – I mean, even The Grandmaster. You wouldn't mistake it for a John Wu movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just – He's just someone who keeps you at a certain remove. Um, he wears sunglasses all the time. He wears sunglasses all the time like great <laughs> filmmakers do. He, he and Abbas Kiara Stammy keep the shades on. But you know what? Listen, when you're as good as Juan Karai and you can shoot a movie for 13 months and nobody complains, if you're David Lynch, you can do whatever you want. I do not care. You can wear an eye patch and ride in crop job purse. <laughs> I don't care, man. Top hat. <laughs> right? Go for it. <laughs> Have we covered it all? Is there anything else? Uh, No, I'm done. Very good. good.